Hello, I'm Abram Van Egel, an English professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And I'm Joanne Diaz, a poet and English professor at Illinois Wesleyan University. And this is Poetry for All. This podcast is for those who already love poetry and for those who know very little about it. In this podcast, we'll read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today, we thought we'd talk about the sonnet, which is certainly the most resilient form in English poetry. Abram, what sonnet are we starting with? One that is definitely worth getting to know better, Shakespeare's Sonnet 18. Very good. Shall I read this poem? Please do. Okay, this is Sonnet 18 by William Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest. Nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. That's great. Thank you. All right, we're talking a little bit about form and structure today. So I thought I'd just start by talking about the form of a sonnet, just so we're all on the same page about that. So basically, a sonnet is 14 lines. Uh, usually broken into quatrains, that's four lines each with a certain kind of rhyme screen, usually A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, as we have here. Uh, and almost always in a sonnet, you're dealing with iambic pentameter. So an iamb is da-dum, pentameter means five of them. So da-dum, 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 da-dum. And almost always in a sonnet, you've got a turn somewhere, uh, usually at the ninth line, sometimes in Shakespeare's sonnets at the 13th line, the, the final couplet. Uh, but usually you have a turn in there. So that's the basic sort of textbook definition of a sonnet. But really there's so much more going on when you get into the machinery of a sonnet and how poets play with sonnet form. And one way to think about a sonnet is through form, and another way is through structure. So when I ask you to talk about the structure of the sonnet, what do you notice, Joanne? Anytime I read a sonnet, and actually any poem, I always put a box, just with a pencil or a pen, around the sentences. Because too often, we read for the line, and we're so concerned about the poetic line that we forget that these are sentences that actually make sense. So this is a poem with three sentences. That's it. The first line is the first sentence. It's a question. So not only do I look at the sentences, I try to figure out what kind of sentences they are. So already my mind is sort of moving, right? Why would this poem have its opening sentence be a question? What is it asking? What, what's, what is it concerned with? The second sentence is a big one. It's 11 lines long. And now I'm thinking, well, why does it have to be so long? And what happens in that sentence? Well, it's basically the poetic speaker is describing all of the ways in which summer, which is seemingly perfect, is not perfect at all compared to the beauty of this young man. 
And then the final sentence is only two lines long, and that's where the Volta appears in a Shakespearean sonnet, and that one takes the shape of an if-then kind of logic. So a lot of Shakespeare's poems have some sort of logical proof in that final couplet, and this is one of them. And so we have to figure out, in order to understand the poem, what do we what work do we do in those first two sentences so that that by the time we get to that third sentence we understand what the logic of the poem is that's great so one way to think about it is we don't know the power of that last sentence until we understand the first two sentences and as you say the first sentence is actually very short it's just one line it's just a question and the second sentence is doing the bulk of the work of this poem so let's try to walk through this and think about what the sort of narrative situation is of the poet as we walk through these sentences, what do you see happening in that first question? What are, what are the possible ways of reading this as a question? Well, it's a great first question. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? First of all, it begins with the word shall. Shall I compare thee? So it's already setting up a relationship between the I and the you. Shall I compare thee? But it's also setting up a literary problem, which is, Am I going to be the one who compares you to a summer's day, um, especially when so many other people in my culture have used this as a commonplace piece of wisdom in their poems and plays? So when Shakespeare <laughs> is writing this, um, probably in the early 1600s, it's published in 1609, many of his fellow poets and playwrights had already used the proverbial wisdom of summer's day as a kind of perfection. So he's entering the stage, if you imagine this as a dramatic speaker, he's walking onto the stage and saying, am I going to do this same thing that every other guy has done in my culture? That's amazing. So I love that because the first sentence is basically, he's almost bored. Yeah. It's a sonnet that begins with sort of, oh, really, we're going to go through with this? All right, fine. Let's, let's do this. Let's compare you to Summer's Day. Here we go. But then the second sentence has this incredible um, transformation that happens. So at first, we begin with the comparison. He goes through with it. He says, well, look, here's the problem with summer. Sometimes the sun is too hot. Sometimes the clouds come. Sometimes the breeze is a little too strong. There's all these problems with summer. You're way better than that. But by the end of the sentence... The real problem with summer comes out, and that is that summer ends. Uh, summer fades away. And by the end of that sentence, that very long sentence, we're no longer talking about beauty per se. We're no longer talking about how the beloved is much better than a summer's day. What we're really talking about is the problem of death. What is going to happen? How do we prevent death and time from taking over us? Uh, and the word untrimmed there basically means to take apart, uh, to take all the clothing and ornament off. So basically time just, just sort of takes us apart. And this becomes the real problem and force of the poem. How do we escape time itself? And how do we escape death itself? And so the poem becomes this very serious thing. So then we get to the third sentence. What do you see happening in the third sentence? Well, this is really remarkable because, you know, I mentioned earlier how when I look at the first sentence, I like to imagine uh, Shakespeare's speaker as like an actor walking onto the stage asking this question. And then he gets very theatrical at the end as well, but also very philosophical. Uh, it says, so long as men can breathe or eyes can see. So basically saying, as long as humans are alive on earth and are capable of seeing things, so long as men can breathe, their eyes can see. I feel pretty confident that's going to be for a while. So long lives this, and this gives life to thee. The this is the poem. 
you know, Shakespeare does this in many of his plays where the words themselves give you the stage direction because he wasn't a huge mm. stage direction guy. But by him t saying this, it's like he's holding the paper in his hand. He's saying, so mm -hmm. long lives this, and this gives life to thee. If you actually think about the performative element of this sonnet, you're like, okay, you're going to give me a piece of paper and I'm going to live forever. <laughs> right. Just... Right after he says, in eternal lines to time thou growest, these lines that I'm writing are going to give you eternity. He's looking at it and saying, well, actually, it's kind of just written on a piece of paper. And actually, if the, if the wind picks up, the paper might blow out the window. Or who knows, the house might burn down tonight. And there it goes. There goes your eternity. Uh, and so th there's this sort of like aha moment there where he's like, actually, it's just a piece of paper. Um, but, you know, the reader is going to give life to you by constantly reading it so long as it kind of sort of survives. So there's this incredible conditional attached to the promise of permanence there. On the one hand, uh, it seems so confident and so audacious that it that poetry could do this. On the other hand, it really makes me think about how fragile the writing is and also how fragile desire is. Miraculously, we are able to read these lines over 400 years later and enjoy them. Uh, and it, in that way, the poet the, is reaching out to us with this little piece of paper. But it, I think that fragility is, is one of the primary takeaways for me of this poem as a result of that final sentence. And it draws my attention to exactly where the turns are happening in this poem. So a sonnet typically has one turn, and here we get that turn, right? So we have this 12th line, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. That's a, a grafting image. So basically, I'm going to bind you to time so that you grow into it and become one with it so that you will live forever. And in a way, the sonnet, if it didn't have to be 14 lines, the 12 lines is a perfect little poem. The 12th line is a perfect little landing spot. And usually the last couplet, the 13 and 14 line, are supposed to be our landing spot. But here we've already landed. And the 13th and 14th line actually unland us. They, they actually make more precarious what has been promised as permanence in line 12. But that breaks us back up the poem a little bit uh, to this realization that there's already been a turn in the poem. So if the first eight lines are the problem of summer, and the real problem of summer is that it fades away, the ninth, but thy eternal summer shall not fade. Whenever you see that but, you you know you, you, you sort of landed on a turn in a poem. We've got a turn. Here's the turn. But your summer is never going to fade away. And how is that going to happen? By the twelfth line, we've got the answer. And then we turn again. So uh, this is a sonnet really with two turns in it. And one way to think about sonnets is they kind of constantly strain against the very sonnet form that they've been given. And so all the breaks with form, all the ways of messing with form, are a lot of the ways in which sonnets become super interesting. You know, Abram, we could spend this whole podcast just talking about all 154 Shakespeare sonnets because that insufficiency, that fragility of the written object is something he's concerned with in so many of the poems. And you have to ask yourself, you know, why does he have to write 154 of them, right? Like, what, what could he not say <laughs> in two or three of them that he feels compelled to return to or something that he needs to complete or describe or exceed? And that is something that, you know, you could just spend lots of time thinking about. Each one of the poems is amazing in that way. Yeah, and when you think about describing, so one of the reasons he's got to write another sonnet is because he's not actually described what this beloved looks like. <laughs> so so if this is the poem that's going to immortalize the beauty of this person, what does this person look like? When you re If this is the only sonnet you've got and you read it, can you tell me what this beloved looks like? Not at all. No idea. 
<laughs> so, so whoops, uh, we, we've got a very specific poem meant to immortalize the beauty of a person without actually giving us any of the details of the beauty of that person. Yeah. So actually what happens by the end of the poem is that the poet has immortalized himself. We do know about the poet, and we do know about the poet skill, and we know nothing really about the beloved by the end of this poem. When you look at, at each of these sentences, what is he doing at, a, at the level of word choice and phrase choice that really leaps out at you? Yeah, I, I love where there's repetition. Uh, it usually draws my attention. Why are we using the same word again? As you said to me before, a sonnet is, is only so much real estate. And when you use a word and use the word again, you are using up some prime real estate. So there's got to be a point to it. And in that second line, you've, you've got the word more twice. Thou art more lovely and more temperate. And I see this as sort of his playfulness at the beginning. The poem really begins very playful because it's kind of messing with that word temperate. The best thing about summer is a mild summer day. And here he's basically saying, you're more, you're more, you're the most, you're the most amazingly temperate. <laughs> <laughs> and so that more is just kind of messing uh, with that word that ends the line. What, what sort of words do you notice? Well, the same one, if I could just spend more time on more, it, it goes against the iambic pentameter line. So this is something that anytime we read a sonnet by Shakespeare or anybody, think about how they go against the meter. So it should be, thou art more lovely and more temperate. That would be a perfect iambic line. But the drama of the line suggests that it should be read, thou art more lovely and more temperate. So that goes against the beat. And that suggests to me that this is a poem where he really wants to accentuate the excesses or the surfeit of beauty that is in this young man, you know? Mm -hmm. The other words that stick out to me are the ones that actually narrate the transformation of this poem uh, from something that's sort of laughably about beauty into something that's really deeply about death. Uh, and so you've got the eye of heaven shines, and then it dims, it's dimmed, and then it declines, and then it fades. And then in line 11, you've got death, death itself. And in fact, that line is a reference to Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And in a way, Shakespeare is almost saying, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't worry, because my pen will immortalize you. My pen is with you. So he's sort of uh, taking on a sort of godly role here. That's remarkable. Uh, and even as I hear you talk about death, and I'm looking at the words around that those lines, the use of eternal, it appears more than once, but thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor blah, 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 when in eternal lines to time thou growest. There's a really serious undertone to this poem, this concern with death and staving it off, and the hope that just words could make that so. It's a very profound concern with mortality that I find very moving. So it's one of those poems that sort of um, takes you off kilter, because we begin with a cliché, and we end with meditations upon permanence, death, and precarity. Mm, yeah. With all of that in mind, would you consider reading this poem again? Sonnet 18. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's least hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, 
nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Bravo, that was so good. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you want to learn more about this poem, you can visit our website, and we hope that you will join us next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.